Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 60. Jon Snow and a Storm of Swords, chapter 4, chapter 5. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You know me from the internet as at Lies and Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and liesandarborgold.com, my blog. And I am Eliana, another one of your hosts. You might know me as Glass Table Girl over on Reddit or on the Maester Monthly podcast. Maybe you know me as Arithmetric over on the internet. We have figured out who Coley is, everyone. Yeah, last week we were very confused. Was it last week? It was last week. We were we were confused. We didn't know who Coley was. They were very familiar sounding. It is our friend James. Hello, James. Thank you so much for the Podbean comment. Yes. Much less confusing now. Well, there were less ease, and also I never look at the actual handle. I'm like, oh, yes, James. He looks like he's popping his collar all the time, and that's how I know him on Twitter. Huh. Yeah, now that you say that, I don't know. Yeah, he's like doing a thing in his picture, right? That's yeah, my, he's- my brain muscle photographic memory. And I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> James. Yeah, that's James. Yeah, hi, James. Uh, we did get a really cute review from... Kitty Mayhem, who is having a great time listening. They said it was a glorious wave to ride with us, uh, finding hidden meanings in George's intentions and analytics from all the different characters. They are excited to read his dark materials because, like me, they are unsullied. They, uh, they have to get the books. And, of course, they pointed out the difference. The British and Commonwealth countries' name of the first book, different from the U.S. version, Northern Lights, as opposed to Golden Compass. I'm not allowed to call it Northern Lights. That makes me pretentious if I do that because I'm from America. I have to stick to just calling it the Golden Compass. Thank you, Kitty. Thank you for writing in from Australia. I like your emojis. Yes, we have to call out that we were left five sparkling star emojis and a cat emoji. I'm oh, also it said Australia with an Australian flag emoji. So... Emojis are important to Eliana. <laughs> They're also important to and you. Me. Sometimes people How do you, you don't know Sometimes me. people think it's me on the account and they're like, there are emojis. It must be Eliana. And I'm like, Chloe also <laughs> speaks in emoji. She too is hip with the kids. <laughs> with the youths. Hello, fellow children. The youths. I don't understand youth culture. Speaking of youth culture, we got a comment. Also on Apple Podcasts from 420 Ned Stark 69 Dragon Killer 666. The title of this of this review is I laughed, I cried, I left the stove on. I'm just gonna read it aloud. There's a lot of feelings going on in this. Girls Gone Canon is a truly excellent podcast. I started listening after hearing one or both of the hosts featured on History of Westeros. I don't know if it was Chloe or Eliana. It was a crazy summer. Lots of crying. Are you okay? Any hoozle, Chloe and Eliana are hysterical. They provide valuable insight into the most important characters of this fandom, like Strong Belwas and Jairus Drinkwater and their chapter-by-chapter analysis for each character brings new life to the books based on the smash HBO television series, Five Dark Stars Out of Five. Man, it was really hard to keep a straight face reading those last few lines. I, like, cracked up trying to read this to Chloe earlier. I hope that you aren't doing a lot of crying this summer. 420 Ned Stark 69 Dragon Killer 666, comma. Uh, I hope that you're having a good summer. And I'm so glad that you gave us five dark stars out of five. Thank you. I mean, I understand we're coming out of cancer season, the reflective period of the moon, you know. But now, as I was reading from an article by The Cut, we are entering Leo season, a time of energy and drama, everyone. 
And you know, as a fellow fire sign, I appreciate that. I'm an Aries. Yep. But I do want to say that we're also Mercury's retrograde. I know. Right now. It's really, really rough. It's obvious that it's bad. like I'm having a very harsh retrograded <gasps> it's it's not a great way to start off leo season everyone the secret behind the girls gone canon chemistry is that we are both fire signs <laughs> that's <laughs> that's kind of a secret to life fire signs do really well together we thrive mm, yes uh fire consumes <laughs> we do a lot of consumption on this podcast <laughs> so we did get <laughs> One last review uh, I, I want to mention personally is very simple. I like it. It's a, I like this podcast. It's by Moose. <laughs> they have a lot of O's. I didn't really want to say the O's. I just wanted to like sound yeah. them out. Uh, they say, I listen lots and the girls are fun and good. Thank you. Thank you, Moose. M- sorry, I said it wrong. Thank you, Moose. Thank you for respecting Moose's name. Yes, it's important for honoring Moose's. One last review before we leave. I want to give a shout out to Pirate Diesel Finn for their review talking about relating to being a tween girl in Sansa's chapters and also loving Paralarvae. Oh, we love our Paralarvae. We do. We're going to talk about our Paralarvae again. Always. Yeah, Absolutely. Especially today, there's definitely some Paralarvae stuff to get Paralarvae into. Paralarvae parallels. No. Yes. Yep. Mm-mm. Parallelvae. Oh. oh. Yeah, next, next Lelvae. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Moose. <laughs> Without further ado, Eliana, will you bring us into our lightning round, if only because I'm excited about the first one? Daenerys 3. You should never talk badly about people in a different language because it's rude. And you can get burnt. Danny takes Aspor and Quaith gives her directions. Turn right into the lake. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel like those directions go. <laughs> I feel like it's just like a corporeal GPS voice. Sansa <laughs> 3. After a final fitting for a special gown gifted to her by the queen, Sansa's delight turns to horror and she is made to wed Tyrion. Arya 5. Harwin tells Arya of the Battle of the Bells? And the Brotherhood serves justice to Northmen in cages who have committed various crimes. The Brotherhood delivers a new familiar captive. I'm excited to get into John 4. It's a pretty short chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, John watches free folk fall to their death while climbing the wall. And as he and Egret ascend, she cries out in frustration to him. They never found the horn of Joramin, and now they must make the treacherous ascent. The chapter begins with John waking and Ghost is nowhere to be found. John's hoping that his wolf has heeded his warning to head to Castle Black, but really he's going to San Francisco. He's not It's homeward that. bound. It's, it's homeward, homeward bound. bound. This is so early for me to fire you in an episode. <laughs> I do like that the question is posed in John 4 of, did Ghost go south? Like, where did Ghost go? And it even comes up in John 5, you know, is this Ghost coming to my aid? But it's not. And it frames that the ultimate answer we get in John 5, we're going to get to. There's a some really cool framework there and something that George has actually followed up on in Fire and Blood. Wait, which thing? Well, Eliana, if you wait till the next <sighs> oh, chapter- shit. John took a breath of the crisp morning air and allowed himself to hope. 
The eastern sky was pink near the horizon and pale gray higher up. The sword of the morning still hung in the south, the bright white star in its hilt blazing like a diamond in the dawn, but the blacks and grays of the darkling forest were turning once again to greens and golds, reds and russets. And above the soldier pines and oaks and ash and sentinels stood the wall, the ice pale and glimmering beneath the dust and dirt that pocked its surface. It's obviously there's a lot of language. This comes after brand two a little bit ago. So a little heavy handed with the whole sword of the morning and stories and all of that. Uh, the language is speculated about here really often, whether it's the anchor for your tinfoil Arthur Dane is core and half hand theory, or if it's just direct foreshadowing for the battle of the dawn to come, or even that Azora high language that surrounds John and his role against the others. It could be a direct tag to the Danes and it, it could be, foreshadowing their role in the future books even or what their role could have been without the five-year gap and their role in the battle of the dawn but i'm not sure i'm not sure in the end it might have just been some really beautiful imagery however george capitalizes sword in the morning you know the Mm -hmm. first letter of each word there is capitalized so that's like john's looking at it like it's that legendary mega sword I don't know. It, it, it's probably just like a retcon and the five-year gap destroyed whatever he thought it might grow into. I don't think it's going to go like it did in the show, but the idea of something with like a bright jewel in the hilt right reminds me of Arya's dagger in the show, but that's red and not a bright white star. It's pretty different. I do think that there's just like so much reforging language in the books in general mm, of like... Yeah. Things being reforged and swords being forged and you have those twin swords and steel out of ice. It's a metaphor. There's got to be more. There's got to be more of that mysticism and that uh, forging. And I don't know. There's got to be something. Something magical has to happen in these books. I can't just subscribe to whatever we saw on TV. There's there's magic. Real magic. But we all know that ice being split into two, turns out, was Brandon Sansa. Each becoming a monarch. Anyway... (laughs) Oh my god. It really was, I though. I was going to say that we, we know that Ice Splitting in Two became part of a very popular song. When Two Become One? Originally, it was just Ice Baby. Now oh. it's Ice Ice Oh, baby. wow. That's the song of Ice, not Ice and Fire, though. The song of Ice Ice Baby and Fire. <laughs> the Magnar sends a dozen men west and a dozen men east to climb and scout for rangers, and the Thens carry horns... To alert their fellow free folk of watchmen. The rest of the wildlings, though, fall in below Jarl, John, and Egret. And this has actually become the moment for young raiders to gain glory. It's the same thing we're seeing across all the different point of views that are in war. Literal green boys in the Reach, soldiers in the Riverlands, soldiers in the North. They're all trying to distinguish themselves under what will be a brand new world, a brand new life under a new king and new rule. Uh, even look at the Riverlands, you have Vance and Piper, you have Brienne Suitors, Mullendore in the Battle of the Blackwater, etc. If these men don't die young and valiantly, they're guaranteed prestige and possibly lands, especially since real estate in war looks pretty good afterwards, right? Think of Blackwater of Tywin and the Tyrells just handing out titles. If they survive and assimilate to get a piece of the cheese like Massey did or any other people, then they're good. Or they turn into scavengers, like Heil Hunt, or 
War turns them into broken men, which we see the direct result of a storm of swords in A Feast for Crows. Uh, it's one of the biggest themes in A Feast for Crows that war makes broken men of us all. I love that you've shown how, I mean, they grew up north of the wall, but they are still in many ways those green young men and they can break. They're the same as those south of the wall. But speaking of the wall, they reach the wall and it's in a location where it's both large and tall, you know, as it is being an enormous wall. Fun fact, George has said that he made the wall too high once he saw the Hoover Dam. Turns out 700 feet was high and George has a bad understanding of measurements, but fair enough. Brandon the Builder. It's fantasy. I mean, yeah, but he also like realized he's like, oh, well, shit. Brandon the Builder had laid his huge foundation blocks along the heights, wherever feasible, and hereabouts the hills rose wild and rugged, and his uncle Benjamin actually had once told him that the wall was a sword to the east, but a snake to the west, a freak in the sheets. What is it? How does this go? A lady in the streets, a freak in the sheets. There we go. Nope, yep. That's not what Benjamin told him. That's exactly what Benjamin told him about the wall. I think it is. Oh my god. John thinks that he sees that now as the wall slopes up and down, dipping into the valleys and out. Interestingly enough, is that kind of like his quaith right there? <laughs> Danny just had that quaith moment of her telling her, you know, to go forward, you must go back. To go east, you or west, you go must go east, blah, blah, blah. Sail here, do this. Left hand blue, <laughs> right foot red. Uh, but Benjen told him the sword, sword to the east and a snake to the west is the wall. So I don't know, it's just interesting, like, the directions, especially because they're pretty much a couple chapters apart. And I mean, the next bit, uh, a Danny chapter directly follows the next chapter, not not after this chapter, but the next one. So George deliberately thinks about where he puts these chapters, is all I'm saying. So I'm curious if that's something similar. Oh, he definitely does. And I'd be really excited to talk about that in our A Feast for Feasts episode. Yes. I have strong thoughts about the composition of that book positive thoughts yes yes jarl though chooses to assault at the ridge where a third of the wall was stone and ice and wood and brush concealed them well it's pretty smart to be honest john realizes though that the thans had actually never seen the wall before and it frightens them john then thinks on how the wall is said to be the end of the world and he agrees it is but it's just which end is all and where you stand and what was stunned John did not know. To stay with Egret, he would need to become a wildling, heart and soul. If he abandoned her to return to his duty, the Magnar might cut her heart out, and if he took her with him, assuming she would go, which was far from certain, well, he could scarcely bring her back to Castle Black to live among the brothers. A deserter and a wildling could expect no welcome anywhere in the Seven Kingdoms. So this makes me think of two things. One, it makes me think of, is this how Rhaegar felt when he and Lyanna stole away from the tourney at, no, it wasn't the tourney at Hall, but like in the Riverlands. And then also, mm-hmm. it kind of reminds me of Sam and Gilly a little, but Sam's not a deserter, but it's just like, you know, a random brother of the Night's Watch and a wildling. And she has a baby. Yeah. What could it mean? Jarl, which, side note, I just want you to know that every time you say Jarl, I think of Jarlsberg cheese. Oh, so good. That's, you can call him Jarl. I just think it's I just cheese. think it's funnier to call him Jarl. No, I like it. I like it better. He's now Jarl forever. 
So Jarl's raiders are not impressed by the wall. They've done this many times before. Okay. Apparently. Wow. Uh, the oldest is 25, and two of them are younger than John. They're all lean and strong and remind him of Stone Snake. Rip. Well, maybe. Rip. He might be alive. Maybe. No. I mean, probably not, but... They wrap rope across themselves in preparation for their climb, strapping doe-skin boots on. They have spikes and bones in their boots for climbing. Uh, they just, like, kick the wall to try to get it in there. Antlers sharpened to be ice axes. Jarl tells the men Mance promises them Castle Forge steel and a slot in his newest mixtape about the climb when he drops it. Uh, and he tells them up, and the others take the hindmost. The others take them all thought John as he watched them scramble up the steep slope of the ridge and vanish beneath the trees. John then recalls many of the wildlings the watch had chased down from the wall. Then a hue and a cry would go up, ravens would fly, and as often as not, the night's watch would hunt them down and hang them before they could get back with their plunder and stolen women. Jarl would not make that mistake, John knew, but he wondered about Stir. The Magnar is a ruler, not a raider. He may not know how the game is played. Stolen woman, quote unquote. What could it mean? How much of this is just like propaganda? <gasps> just saying. I'm just saying. What? What? Just saying. It's a smear campaign. And so, <laughs> so John watches the wildlings ascend. They start at a tree before they go anywhere near the ice. They're only 300 foot up the feet. They're only 300 feet up the wall, and the first 300 feet is stone. Honestly, I'm very impressed at Jarl. I think that this was all a very good ideas on his part. It's just luck. Bad luck. And John actually wonders how they, as in the Night's Watch, let any of these trees get this fucking high this close to the wall. And it really hammers home once more how undermanned the Watch is, especially as we near that battle with Castle Black. Because had it all been staffed, had the entire wall been staffed, A, the trees wouldn't have grown so close, and B, people would have noticed, oh, look, there are wildlings climbing the wall, and they would have been cut sooner. <sighs> yeah. Who do we root for? I don't know. Humanity. I do. Humanity. I That's do who root, we root for. for huge manatees, to be honest. <laughs> So Jarl begins to stab iron stakes into the ice for climbing. The others follow. Not those <laughs> others, the other wildlings. Some Thens had no tree to climb in their area, so they had to make footholds from the start, feeling really lost as they start climbing. Uh, Grig the goat is leading a team on the far right. A man named Erak leads on the left, and Jarl's team is across the center. The Magnar is complaining about the speed of the climb, and John's like, okay, sure. Like, that's a little foolish. He remembers the climb through Skirling Pass, which is not the wall. That had been stone, not ice. And he can't imagine trying to go quickly up the ice whatsoever. And worse than that, the day is super warm, super moist. So the climbers alone are causing the wall to weep, which is a fancy way to say melt on the surface, you know, and like melt mostly. <laughs> art though it's weeping the walls weeping yes and john thinks that whatever else the wildlings are they're brave and again the way that john thinks of and interacts with the magnar and the thens makes this question like 
What's so great about the Westerosi anyway? Because clearly John thinks that Stir is being pretty foolish and demanding that the men go faster, especially because, you know, you're just here sitting cushy on your ass down on the ground, right? And like the same man that John thinks is cold and would have been easier to betray than the other free folk, like is acting very much like the other Westerosi lords, right? Sending other men to go do the hard work of dying for them, the dangerous shit, while they benefit from an easier climb to the top. Yeah, and that is exactly how corporate America works, you guys. And in this essay, I will. So John secretly hopes that Steer is correct, that the watch is waiting for them. If the gods are good, a patrol will chance by and put an end to this. No wall can keep you safe, his father had told him once as they walked the walls of Winterfell. A wall is only as strong as the men who defend it. The wildlings might have 120 men, but four defenders would be enough to see them off with a few well-placed arrows and perhaps a pail of stones. Okay, as soon as I saw this part of the passage, all I could think of was like, Mufasa! Dad! Like, everything the light touches is yours, Jon Snow. So mostly that pebble over there on the ground, because you're an orphan. And basically, though, this is what Castle Black does later, though, right? Like, they have, okay, more than just a pail of stones, but... The Castle Black guys have pails of stones, they have Mm well-placed arrows, that's how they defeat them, mostly. It's the etchings of the plan later on. They just barely hold them off, but I just realized something that just hit me. I don't know why, I've never connected this, it's like pretty fucking obvious. Based on what Ned is saying, walls aren't going to protect you. Danny's easily able to take Astapor. The walls don't protect the masters, and then later Mm. on in Marine... It's kind of like the opposite of here, where they're going over the wall. In Marine, they go under the wall through the sewers. It's things. This is a thing. Okay, that's all. No men of the Watch appear. Uh, John does not get his wish. They are not waiting to ambush them. And Jarl's team of climbers hit a very bad spot of ice. Yes, they send chunks of ice cascading down. And by the time they recover, Grig the goat, who has a fantastic name, maybe a goat name, has caught up with them. (laughs) 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 Grig's section zigzags. Grigon, take notes. Damn, rip. And make holes all throughout the wall, which is eroded and big enough for a man to hide in. And John thinks that, like, damn, their legs must be so numb by now from, like, kicking at this, like, very cold wall and trying to make strongholds. And, yeah, probs. He listens for the horn to warn of rangers, and it never comes. Hour six strolls by, and Jarl has gotten past Grig again. It's like a little race watching them go up the wall. Magnar jokes Mance's pet wants a sword at Jarl, and the sun is high in the sky. The glare is too much to look at on the crystal, and the men suddenly no longer edge upward, but they're edging side to side. A loud crack sounds off through the wall, and men are suddenly falling off the wall. Shards of ice are everywhere. A chunk of ice breaks a guy's nose. John is chivalrous. He shields Egret with his body from all the ice falling. And when they look up again, Jarl and his team are gone. They're just gone. A huge hole is where they had been. Same with our hearts. (sighs) The wall defends itself, John thought as he pulled Egret back to her feet. 
They found Jarl in a tree, impaled upon a splintered branch and still roped to the three men who lay broken beneath him. One was still alive, but his legs and spine were shattered, and most of his ribs as well. Mercy, he said when they came upon him. One of the thens smashed his head in with a big stone mace. The magnar gave orders, and his men began to gather fuel for a pyre. This is an interesting passage. There's a lot in here. There's some stuff that like, I even saw in season eight, and we're going to come back to that. There's a lot of parallel here. It reminds me so much of all of the different mercy that we've been chasing from A Game of Thrones with the child's mercy for Ned uh, in A Clash of Kings, Sansa at the Blackwater, with Sandor and Arya in their travels on the road. Just so much mercy that we're chasing, and it comes back to this moment and it also kind of reminds me of the slaves in Marine and the Battle of Fire in the Barristan the Winds of Winter chapter that we've talked about. Minor mm. spoilers, but if you haven't read the Winds of Winter sample chapter, it has to do with Little Pigeon, Little Pigeon. one of the best characters of of David Benioff and D.B. Weiss's creation in the hit TV show that the book series was based on, A Game of Thrones. You can watch it on HBO. Uh, if you pay fifteen ninety nine a month, you can get anyway. So pay me HBO. <laughs> yes, shell. Uh, <laughs> it kind of reminds me because they're all roped together, right? All of these people are roped together and stuck together. So when one falls, the person you're attached to is pretty much fucked. And it reminds me of how the slaves in the Battle of Fire are chained together, like little pigeon. They're all chained on like stilts, and they have a marabou feather boa, and they're all chained together in a row in a column and row fighting which is like you're on stilts and you're fighting in a war and everything's on fire <laughs> this it's is fine. fine but yeah that, that that reminds me of that a lot it reminds me of uh just having the whole universe against yeah. you it is fascinating though because like it's just because the whole chunk of wall falls down right because this strange method of tying each other to one another kind of like saves them at first we can see, like, oh, yes, mm-hmm. there's logic behind this initially, which I think was useful. Like, it's good that we were shown that. There's a lot of language in here, though, where the free folk and what they say eerily echo some of the other phrases in the story. Like, you were pointing out how this idea of mercy comes up here mm-hmm. and is echoed throughout A Storm of Swords and, and Arya's and Sansa's stories in general. But there's stuff in this chapter and later, along with that mercy, like when Egret says, all men must die later, and it's it's spooky, but it's obviously just like, I don't know, meaning, themes, shit like that. Yeah. Made the others take you. Mm-hmm. And also with you. Lift up your hearts, <laughs> we lifted them up to the Lord. They burn the dead, and Grig the goat reaches the top nice. of the wall. Five survive the climb at the end of this total of that original group. So of Jarl and Grig and Erox's group, five people survive. It's intense. Yeah. That's... Egret tells John she hates the wall and asks if he can feel the cold of it. And he's like, it's made of ice, Egret. Of course it's cold. And she's like, no, John, it's made of blood. You know nothing, Jon Snow. And there's a lot to talk about in here of what like this wall means for Egret and her people and how many men have died impaled on trees or spikes or from the cold or from slipping and breaking their neck and back. Like how many of her people have died trying to come over the wall and trying to escape the others or escape, you know, this life that they've built for themselves here that is unrewarding, unfulfilling and uh, dangerous. And, you know, people put up walls, trap things on the other side like bad things and good people get stuck there as well all the time so 
really just interesting talking points. I agree. It it is, and it turns the wall. Like we've been told, right, for a long time that it feels alive, and it turns it into this very hateful presence, this malevolent thing. And then, you know, John and Egret climb this thing. And by sunset, two Thens have died on the way to the top. Uh, they almost fell a few times. It was midnight by the time they reached the top. Egret's upset, though, because she almost fell three times. And she felt, again, like the wall was trying to shake her off, personifying the wall. The worst is behind us, John tried to sound confident. Don't be frightened. He tried to put an arm around her. Egret slammed the heel of her hand into his chest so hard it stung, even through his layers of wool, mail, and boiled leather. It wasn't frightened. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Why are you crying then? Not for fear. She kicked savagely at the ice beneath her with a heel, chopping out a chunk. I'm crying because we never found the Horde of Winter. We opened half a hundred graves and let all those shades loose in the world and never found the Horn of Jormund to bring this cold thing down. Kind of confirms that the horn that was in that uh, that sack and cache of obsidian, that's likely the real horn then, right? I mean... Yes, it's with Sam. The horn. Darn, too bad Sam's going to Old Town. Oh man, who could possibly be close to Old Town that would want to blow a horn? Are you saying that Euron Greyjoy is horny? Isn't he? <laughs> do, do. Do, do, do. Do, do. <laughs> okay. There's also the things that, like, Mance chooses and hides from his people, coming back to the idea of, like, finding the horn and not. Because he kind of wonders, he thinks that they found it, right? But he kind of speculates on whether or not it's wise to blow it, even, like, risking the lives of these people for, like, his weird plan. Uh, it's probably better, I guess, that they didn't try to blow it in retrospect. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe not. Who Less knows what would have happened. now. Well, I guess they would have just been pretty fucking disappointed, and then also then we'd have less mysteries in the book and less horns to be like, oh, what is this? The series would have ended in a dance with dragons. We would have been done. They'd be like, oh, well, shit, guess that wasn't it. But <laughs> Mance understands just as well as Egret what the wall is built on, uh, all of that blood and all of those tears that are weeping from it, and knows that tearing it down means that, yeah, sure, the free folk can cross to the other side of it, but he also realizes that this wall that's killing them right now could very well be their salvation if they can just make it to the other side. Because, you know, something's gotta hold back the others, is obviously his hope. So again, the wall is this- it, it's that duality that you see so often in A Song of Ice and Fire. Maybe it's a crazy thought, but because of all the blood that goes into that wall- do you think that sustains the magic of the wall? It could. I mean, like, they, what? There's a lot of language that we've been seeing in this, especially with those ideas of sacrifice, right? Like, the 79 sentinels are buried in the wall. You have a uh, fucking, what's his name? The guy that I think of as Axe, the body spray, but he's not. The one who was digging through the wall we just talked Arson, about. Arson, Ice Axe. Arson. It doesn't make sense. Arson's a totally different thing. And he's buried in the wall and i think that's something that's in it but it also reminds me then of like those horrors of like what went into making the great wall of china right mm -hmm. like 
yeah. there's blood in making these inc- really majestic works of man, but it's terrible. Only death can pay for life. Yep, I guess. <laughs> that brings us to our next lightning round between John 4 and John 5 in Storm of Swords. First, we have Jamie 4. Jamie's infected wound has brought him a fever, and he helps ward off harm coming to Brienne. Later, he arrives at Harrenhal and thinks on Vargo Hout and how a Lannister always pays his debts. Tyrion 4. A singer threatens Tyrion and Shay's anonymity and finds himself in a bowl of brown. <laughs> a. Tywin obtains Valyrian steel and orders Tyrion to consummate his marriage. Also, things look bad for the Night's Watch, but we already knew that. Yeah, we knew that. Oh, we, <laughs> we know. Speaking of them, in Sam 2, 44 survivors from the Fist of the First Men have made their way to shelter at Craster's Keep, where provisions and tensions are getting pretty harsh. A mutiny ensues, writ in Craster and Mormont's blood. Sam and Gilly escape. Arya 6. Beric Dondarrion gives Sandra Clegane a trial by light. Catelyn 4. After Hoster Tully's funeral, the Stark faction learns they've lost a third of their infantry at Duskendale. Refusing Catelyn's pleas to make peace, Rob makes plans to keep his crown. Davos 4. Davos is raised to Lord of the Rainwood, Admiral of the Seven Seas, and Hand of the King. Yay! Yay! Good job, Dad. Other Dad. Jamie 5. Jamie and Brienne take a nice hot bath where they talk about Jamie's crimes before meeting Roose Bolton and his new wife, Walda Frey. Also, no alarms going off that Roose Bolton suddenly married Walda Frey. No one? I know, right? But I mean, like, she is a precious cinnamon bun. I do love that Walda Frey. Yeah. Tyrion 5. Tyrion is sent to meet Prince Doran Martell, but it's the Red Viper? who has arrived instead with 300 Dornish spears and many tales to tell. Oh, and a thirst for vengeance. He is thirsty. Oh, isn't he? Daddy Oberyn is V-thirsty. <laughs> yeah, Davos is dad, but Oberyn is daddy. There's a difference, people. Keep up. Arya 7. Arya watches Sandor walk away a free man and learns she is to be ransomed to her family. Gendry joins the Brotherhood and he's knighted by Beric. Later... The Hound attempts to retrieve his gold, but he sent away Ellipsis. Bran 3. Bran and his friends land at Queen's Crown during an awful storm, and they hear men outside. That's interesting that you say that, Eliana, because in John 5 in A Storm of Swords, John, Egret, hmm. and the Magnar and his men land at Queen's Crown as well, and they test Aww. him once more. But John balks. Bok, bok. And John attempts to turn his cloak once more. John and Egret walk along leaves and pine needles, and Egret asks, like, who built this ancient and empty brown tower? And she wonders if it wasn't some king. Brandon's gift had been farmed for thousands of years, but as the watch dwindled, there were fewer hands to plow the fields, tend the bees, and plant the orchards, so the wild had reclaimed many a field and hall. In the new gift, there had been villages and holdfasts whose taxes 
rendered in goods and labor, helped feed and clothe the Black Brothers, but those were largely gone as well. There's a little bit of that condescension here that John has with Egret. Um, and it, it, it comes into play semi-often because he just thinks, like, she's so wild. She has no clue what she's saying because she's just so wild. So wild. Wow, she could just never be normal because she's just wild. And it is two different worlds, but it's interesting how it comes back because Egret says to him, we were fools to leave such a castle. And John was like, it's a tower house. Winterfell has three times as many towers as this broken down, busted up keep has Egret. And Egret's like, I don't believe you because they don't have giants, so they can't build this high on their own. And John thinks of Brandon the Builder, but he thinks, I don't want to confuse her. Shut up, John. Yeah, he was thinking that Brandon, yeah, apparently Brandon the Builder did use giants, but whatever. Also, it's like, just because you can't explain your magical story that well, John, like, just be better at storytelling. She could understand you. You understand yeah. her stories. Why can't she understand yours? I'm going to play, like, Great Others Advocate here, though, and talk about, I don't know, I kind of feel mixed about this because on one hand, yeah, as you're saying, John's totally being pretty condescending in all this, but it's interesting that it starts happening once he comes back to this side of the wall now that they're, like, on his turf, mm -hmm. and suddenly he feels like he knows the things on this side of the wall, as opposed to when he didn't know anything on the other side, right? And you can totally see, though, that the way that he feels that Egret doesn't understand things, Egret kind of feels that way about John too, hence her always saying, like, you know nothing. And I think that it's just, like, they're both from different cultures, and John's also experiencing a lot of cognitive dissonance right now between, like, who he is and a lot of culture shock, of course. Um, and it's, like, not exactly the same, but there are definitely ways in which, like, my family and I don't always see eye to eye on things and we give up trying to explain things to each other and clash and how we understand the world being from like different cultures, me having grown up in America and them having grown up in a different country. But mm -hmm. like John, like he's be caught in the middle in a way here, right? As, as Theon was. And it's interesting because you see that in a lot of the other character stories. I think Danny's story is a little like this as a someone who grows up not really understanding any culture that they're from. Very strange. And only learning it through third-hand stories. But there's other stuff at play here, right? And I don't think it's wrong to read John as being condescending, but there's obviously like this a lot of inner turmoil going on here of him trying to rectify where he stands. And obviously there's like a whole battle on the line, and uh, that doesn't really happen between me and my family. Right, absolutely. No, I, I get that for sure, but I do think he's being just a touch condescending because like you said, yeah. if you read it this way, he's A, trying to disconnect. He's yes, trying to disengage exactly. from her, very much so. Uh, he's trying to just like keep the roles as far apart as he can, and at the same time that he's doing that, uh, I can see... I can see some of the parallels coming into play later on in other relationships he might get into. And hmm. that whole different culture, not knowing the Westerosi way, him slash knowing slash the Westerosi way. Uh, if he had a girlfriend that may or may not be coming from overseas to live in Westeros and take back her family house, I could just see him maybe being short with her if this is how he's treating another girl from another country. Oh, yeah, definitely. And definitely being like, no, you don't understand how things work here. Yeah, like, Danny, that's not, that's not what we do, Danny. 
Oh my god. John tells Egret of the walls in Old Town that are even higher than these. He could tell she did not believe him. If I could show her Winterfell, give her a flower from the glass gardens, feast her in the great hall, and show her the stone kings on their thrones, we could bathe in the hot pools and love beneath the hot tree while the old gods watched over us. The dream was sweet, but Winterfell would never be his to show. It belonged to his brother, the king in the north. He was a snow, not a stark, bastard, oath-breaker, and turncloak. So dramatic, but now it's kind of like warranted for him. <laughs> yeah. Might be after we could come back here and live in that tower, she said. Would you want that, Jon Snow? After? After. The word was a spear thrust. After the war. After the conquest. After the wildlings break the wall. His lord father had once talked about raising new lords and settling them in the abandoned holdfasts as a shield against wildlings. The plan would have required the watch to yield back a large part of the gift, but his uncle Benjen believed the lord commander could be one around, so long as the new lordlings paid taxes to Castle Black rather than Winterfell. It is a dream for spring, though, Lord Eddard had said. Even the promise of land will not lure men north with winter coming on. Uh, my heart. <laughs> I love this song. <laughs> oh, we are going to have... Chloe's got a lot of good thoughts, but before that, quick side note. Is the language of running away to live in a tower as Egret proposes, and for things like after the war, we can be together, whatever. Another thing that's reminiscent of Lyanna and Rhaegar running to live in their Tower of Joy, and, you know, like, Rhaegar does say things like, things are going to change when I come back after the war. Lol. Well, something we hear in this very chapter. Many a night he lay with Egret warm beside him, wondering if his lord father had felt this confused about his mother, whoever she had been. Probs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I feel like this is very similar language to what we saw in season eight of the hit TV show that the books are based off of, Game of Thrones. We will not be stopped. I, I wish I would stop. I wish someone would stop me, but all of you keep encouraging it. Mm -hmm. I, I'm an enabler. I think there's a lot to be gleaned in this chapter and in this passage, especially of Ned's game plan. And we hear later, this chapter is very connected. It has uh, Queen Alisanne and her visit to the north and her gifting that new gift to the watch. I think that's there on purpose. I've done a lot of talking about Sansa as a good Queen Alisanne-esque character, holding woman's court and just a lot of their features and the things they do. Very similar, and there are a lot of thoughts with the Dream of Spring. This really frames that Ned wanted to resettle the gift, and his children, what are they going to do? They're there to carry out the end of his legacy, right? Or to bring his legacy full circle. Uh, Queen Alisanne and Queen Sansa, if the show's to be believed, which I mean, George said the endgame was canon, so I'm going to go ahead and say it is. And Sansa as the Queen in the North probably will help resettle the gift, especially with some help from John, I'd imagine, who has rallied the wildlings to his cause. If he does have to go north and be a part of the Great North or still lead the Night's Watch in the end or live in exile with the Night's Watch, uh, he would be in charge in needing tax money, right, to upkeep the watch. And resettling that new gift might just be the way to go, especially with a lot of new wildling families like Alice Karstark's new husband, Sigourn of the Fens. Um, just some ideas, just spitballing, you know? That's definitely a thought. 
And there's another Ali who does something similar with resettling, kind of, after a war. After the dance, Ali Blackwood, yeah. who proposes, hey, all these random Northmen who I guess are down here now, I guess we can just put them together with these other women who lost their husbands, and they can just revitalize the Riverlands. Yeah, it's a really, just a recurring theme, especially in the history of A Song of Ice and Fire's prehistory and everything we've learned from fire and blood that as silly as it sounds to be all oh making matches making marriages it's very important you have to have people that have kids and kids that are healthy and strong that eat the grain and the harvest that has been stored for months from winter and during spring for you know them to grow and grow those bitches up so they can make stuff and fight stuff and do stuff for you that's how your civilization runs in these times so definitely a big focus on it for a reason John thinks, though, regarding his father, that Eddard might have actually given him one of these castles. You know, had Eddard lived and John not joined the Night's Watch, there's like a big stipulation. There's a couple of things here, John. I love the line, Lord Eddard was dead, however. His brother Benjen lost. The shield they dreamt together would never be forged. So, again, obvious nod that that shield is going to be forged someday, Rob slash John and Bran and slash Rickon. Lord Eddard was dead, however. His brother Benjen lost. So, John and Bran? Rob hmm. and Bran? Rob Rickon? John Rickon? I'm yeah. just saying. Some interesting thoughts. Or, if you really want to go left field, Sansa and John and Bran. I mean, uh, if Sansa's going to be helping forge the gift, and I'm sure King Bran might have some help in it. A lot of Sansa's language and imagery is associated with shields, so... But yeah, also same with John. Shield. He's the shield that guards the realms of men. His honor. What's his honor? You know, worth against guarding the realm. Anyways, so yeah, just some thoughts. And I do want to circle back real quick to that quote when Egret says, would you want that Jon Snow after to live in that tower? And then after the word was a spear thrust after the war, after the conquest. I think we'll be coming back to that phrase eventually in our reading. After later, the war. later. Yeah, after, after the, the conquest. conquest. Yeah, I think that after the conquest is quite interesting language because it's something you don't think of, right? Necessarily associated with those wildlings, but it is something you associate with maybe a conqueror. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, and a spear thrust. Mm. Eliana, mm. It's, it's right there. It's all right there. He's been it's telling us right this for there. so long, and we were just like, we'll see. We'll see what you write, George. And then he still hasn't, so. Lol. We'll see. Any <laughs> anyway, John tells Egret that this land belongs to the Watch, and Egret angrily responds that no one fucking lives here, dude. And John reminds her no one lives here because of the free folk raiding them. And Egret's like, well, maybe they should have stayed and fought then. What do you think about that? And John's like, that's ridiculous, because they were tired of being fucking raided and raped and stolen from, and they're kidnapped, and their daughter's being kidnapped, and all that stuff. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Daughters are taken, not wives. You're the ones who steal. You took the whole world and built the walls to keep the free folk out. Did we? Sometimes John forgot how wild she was, and then she would remind him. How did that happen? The gods made the earth for all men to share. Only when the kings come with their crowds and steel swords, they claimed it was all theirs. 
My trees, they said. You can't eat them apples. My stream. You can't fish here. My wood. You're not to hunt. My earth. My water. My castle. My daughter. Keep your hands away or I'll chop them off. Maybe if you kneel to me, I'll let you have a sniff. You call us thieves, but at least a thief has to be brave and clever and quick. A kneeler only has to kneel. I'm kind of offended at that because I'm just like... Technically, in her words, Ned Stark was a kneeler, but we know why he knelt, because he knelt for honor and for love. So, like, in my head, I'm like, Egret, you don't know. You know nothing. Listen, uh, maybe I'll condescend to you, bitch. But... It's interesting, also, when you think about Tor and Stark, and we'll think mm-hmm. about that a little more deeply, like, in a bit, this month, but, like, it's a difficult choice. Well, and it, it all resounds back to that societal and feudal contract of what you're paying for. And it's like how today, like you and I, if I really, really wanted to go off the grid, it would take a lot of effort to get rid of all of my electronic connections, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, get off the grid, get out of the government circle, get, you know, no paycheck coming in, you're farming, you're doing this, doing that. But when you're paying for that societal contract and living in that society, you're paying for that protection. And that's that feudal contract we talk about with the high lords and their small folk. Um, And Egret thinks that she doesn't have that kind of contract, that she is, she's got Metro PCS and we have Sprint. You know what I mean? Like, that's like the closest thing I tell you, but you're still paying, Egret. You're still paying $45 a month for unlimited while you're also like battling no service in cities. Yeah, Egret thinks she's like on that Bitcoin shit. We're over here. And I think it's kind of apparent at this point that the books are definitely going in the direction that the show painted them um, going. Right, as far as Egret being such a big analog for Daenerys, uh, invading foreign armies, hurting the people that Jon loves, wildness, right, the Targaryen fire equality versus Egret, and then that tragic end in Jon turning his cloak once more back to what he will always be. I just think it's a little obvious, but it's also, this is my favorite passage, though, uh, that Egret has, I would say. I really like this passage, and mm-hmm. the main realm did make a world and shut them out, and it was unfair. But they don't want to subscribe to that life that the king and queens of Westeros offer. They would rather die in battle against the authorities than join the oppressors that they have. So, just some thoughts. Some thoughts. And what you said about Egret and, of course, Danny and tying them together, it reminds me of another line that John remembers in one of these chapters that Corrin Halfhanded told him about how, again, fire is life, but fire is also death and again it's like that duality of things in the way that the wall is protection but also a threat it's all in where you stand aha yes john does think that yes he does john also tells egret that when her people come they don't just take an apple or a fish because Harmon Dog said in Rattleshirt, they just rage for fucking anything that they can touch, and it doesn't. It's not actually like that useful, right? He's like, they take spices and silks and all these fineries, and also they take our women, and then they bring them back beyond the wall. And Egret's like, well, I'd rather be stolen by a strong man than a weakling, so I don't see the issue here. And John tries to give her some nuance by describing different ways that a man who steals her could be too totally awful. 
Yeah, he's like, well, Egret, your new boyfriend who stole you could drink too much and he could beat you savagely. And they could stink really badly every time they tried to take you. And she was like, I just like pour water on him. And flowers are for the bees anyways. I don't care what he smells like. He should be a man. And also, if he touched me, I would murder him. You know nothing. Jon Snow. And he thinks, I know one thing. I know that you're a wildling to the bone. It was easy to forget that sometimes when they were laughing together or kissing, but then one of them would say something or do something, and he would be suddenly reminded of the wall between their worlds. Wow, the wall between their I worlds. I know, right? It's, a uh, George, oh. you wrote that. You did that. You put that wall. What does it mean? <laughs> I, again, I know I broke a broken record here, but there's a lot of painting here of his future relationships. And I could see him just thinking like it was easy to forget that sometimes about Danny when they're laughing together, kissing, but then when the fire takes her. I wonder if it'll be that, but also it was easy to forget that she was his aunt yep. when they were laughing together and kissing oh, together. Fuck. I think it's going to be something a little like that, too. We can come back to this later, but I kind of think that it reminds me a little of the book 100 Years of Solitude oh. and there's a specter of incest that hangs over that story. And I'm just going to spoil it for everyone. Fast forward about 15 to 30 seconds if you don't want to be spoiled. But 100 Years of Solitude follows a story of a family. And a lot of them have same recurring names, things like that. They build up this like city. And it ends when a nephew and his aunt unknowingly end up in a relationship together. Mm. And then everything falls like, apart. Like, now they know it's not okay. Yeah, like, then they found out, and they're like, well, shit. And then they had a child that was born kind of looking like a monster, but it had, like, a little pig's mm. tail. That's this, like, sign of incest, and then, like, ants carried its body away or something. Magical realism's a lot, yeah, that, everyone. That a lot. It's great. I, it's, act it's actually one of my favorite books, I'm gonna be honest. Would recommend if you haven't read it. You're selling it, honestly, really hard. Am I? Am I? I mean, I, I can sell it harder later. So, Ikrit tells John, a man can own a woman or a knife, but not both. Every girl learns that from their mother. This line feels almost Liana related in a way, like Robert and Liana vibes. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, it reminds me of Liana and Robert, especially because the person that John is describing very much sounds like Robert, right? And because of that, it kind of reminds me of Robert and Cersei as well. Like, I'm not saying that Egret is right, but you can kind of sympathize with what she's saying here. And what she's saying here also kind of reminds me of how Oberyn raises daughters, side mm, note. Mm -hmm. But you can also kind of sympathize then with how Cersei takes her course of action if you can see that logic or sympathize with e what Egret is saying. Because this language, again, it's a man who drinks too much and he beats his wife, right? That's the Robert that we see in the first book. And finally, years and years and years later, Cersei uses Robert's own vices against him to kill him. She doesn't quite take a knife to his throat, but she's been bringing all these sort of metaphorical knives to try and kill him in a couple of ways, like goading him into a melee, or then using his love of alcohol, sorry, and using his alcoholism as a way to lure him into an accident. 
That is interesting. I didn't really think about that. Yeah, I like that added Cersei layer. It reminds me of the show quote when she says to him, uh, what what could Lyanna Stark's ghost do to either of us that we haven't done to each other? Mm, I love yeah. that because I'm just like, Jon yeah. Snow. Jon Snow is what? It's... <laughs> That's true. It it is, and like I don't know, it it reminds me of like what Vanessa was saying in the previous episode, right? Like I mean, for all the ways that we see how free but not free the free folk mm-hmm. women are, there's some like weird ideas on the uh, s- mating and courtship and sexual roles. Yeah, especially with Egret when she was telling John, like you don't know anything. That's my brother, and he's like, okay. I just thought maybe you guys were close. It felt like it. It was a little weird. So. John's just really into people who are maybe brothers or very close to one Honestly, another. Honestly, maybe it's that incest tug. Being in... Yeah. He can't help who he is. He's like, makes sense to me. He's a Stark yep. and he's a Targaryen. So Egret wow. tells John, men can't own the land any more than they can own the sea or the sky. I think that's an interesting line because you have Daenerys owning the sky with her dragons. You have Euron owning the sea with his kraken or whatever he's raising. Spoilers, I guess. Technically. Oops. Uh, And the land, which you could say is owned by Bran and Bloodraven, right? Like, they're in control with the children of the forest of the tree roots and the trees. So I I just thought that was interesting that Egret just straight up says, like, men can't own the land. They can't own the sea. They can't own the sky. But you have all this magical uh, autonomy happening in the background of just things happening that are magical that people don't see happening per se right away, but they're happening. There's a song. You're going to be so mad when I say (sighs) this, but a lot of how you've been describing everything and like this language reminds me of it. Uh, The song starts out with like, you think I'm an ignorant savage, and you've been so many places, I guess it must be so. But still, I cannot see if the savage one is me. <laughs> and then, yeah, like, the, you can't own all this thing, these things. She's like, obviously, okay, you all know this song, right? You think you own whatever land you land on. The earth is just a dead thing you can claim. Not saying that... Are you trying to compare a Song of Ice and Fire to Pocahontas, the animated movie? Am I saying that maybe Colors of the Wind, which was released in 1995 and therefore before A Storm of Swords, might have influenced this? Maybe. Well, you are in A Song of Ice and Fire Luminary, so I'm just going to let it slide. (laughs) John thinks that Egret is being very brave in talking about what they're going to do uh, and how they're going to win, but he lowers his voice and he tells her, Mance can't win this war, Egret. But she insists he can, and that John has never actually seen the Free Folk fight. John thinks wildlings fought like heroes or demons, depending on who you talk to, but it came down to the same thing in the end. They fight with reckless courage, every man out for glory. Kind of reminds me of the Dothraki, but okay, interesting. Uh, yep, I was thinking that, yep. Well, yep. Yep. I feel like there's many things yep. where we're on the same It's the same thing, Eliana. It's like we do a podcast same together. Thing. It's all the same thing. <laughs> I'm so mad because it's all right there. Yep. yep. It's like we're Maester Eamon. He's looking at us in our faces the whole time. To go forward, we must go back. If we look back, we are lost. That's how we feel right now, everyone. John tells Egret that he knows that the free folk are fierce and brave, but discipline beats out bravery every time, and in the end, Mance is going to break with the rest of them. And Egret's like, I mean, what do you mean them? 
don't you mean us? We're a thing now. We are an item. I know you're no crow. Like, this is a thing. We had the talk. We're boyfriend and girlfriend. Exclusive. I swore you weren't a crow. So, like, if you say you are, all of a sudden, you're breaking our contract. Like, don't fucking blow this for me. Right? Pretty much. She's like, that'd be super shitty. My life will be on the line. When they finally broke apart, Egret was flushed. You're mine, she whispered. Mine, as I'm yours. And if we die, we die. All men must die, Jon Snow. But first we'll live. Yes, his voice was thick. First we'll live. Man, they they were going to have great makeup sex that night, but then they didn't. um, Because all the shit that happens later after happens. Um, Also... This line makes me think of this thing that, like, we have friends, like, I don't know, on this other podcast. It's, like, not a podcast, though. And they're really into this idea of men's lives have meaning, not their deaths, from the Quentin chapters, if you'll remember them many, many moons ago. (laughs) I was just thinking today, it's been so long. I was thinking of this line, uh, especially as we get to John's test in this chapter, actually, is kind of where I was thinking about it Mm. more. John doesn't really feel great about the choices he's making. He thinks, wildling to the bone, he thought again, with a sick, sad feeling in the pit of his stomach. It'll be interesting when that's changed to Targaryen to the bone, huh? Mm, But then you'd have to question about himself. Am I a dragon to the bone? What am I? Well, there you go. That'll be an interesting book and a half. As he's questioning here... John knows he has to betray the wildlings sooner than later. They descend the wall at Greyguard, and Steer takes them through the depth of the gift, where no rangers will come across them. John thinks on Corrin's words about not balking. Balk. And he knows the free folk still do not trust him, and that his time to leave is running out. Corrin had told him to fight with them. Once I shed a brother's blood, I am lost. I crossed the wall for good then. And there's no crossing back. Or an ants? Once I shot a brother's blood? Or maybe your ants? I don't know. Oh, yes, that. Yeah, I mean, that is what it is, right? It's when you kill someone. And we've kind of seen this at another point at the beginning of the series, or not the beginning, with a different character that we've done. Because we do this podcast where we do character rereads. Like, this is John thinking about his own crossing of the Rubicon moment of when is the point of no return of crossing back? Because A Song of Ice and Fire does ask this of its characters often, because as a reminder, we saw it again in Theon Greyjoy's story as he came upon a river searching for Bran and Rickon and then was about to give up and decided, wait, I can come back with bodies that are maybe Bran and Rickon's, and that's his point of no return, he decides to keep going forward and that he can't go back. George asks us, where is the point of no return with Jamie Lannister, who commits a heinous crime at the beginning of A Game of Thrones, but who in the very same book as these chapters starts to gain his own chapters, and that question becomes the thing. And then he also asks it like through Arya, right? Like a child who's learning that, oh yeah, killing. We do that without even looking into a man's eyes to judge whether or not he deserves it. So John himself is wondering if he can go back and wonders how far gone he is as well. And that he wonders and questions this is actually what differentiates him from Theon and 
the way Theon thinks about, oh, I had to do it. I was forced to do all these things before the Boltons take Winterfell because Theon's justifying his actions, whereas John ruminates upon them and wonders if he can ever atone for these. The Magnar keeps asking John questions about Castle Black's defenses, and John does his best to combat and evade those questions, and he wants to evade the truth because the truth, well, it's kind of awful, right? Castle Black has no real defenses currently. John doesn't even know who's alive after that slaughtered end of the ranging. Mance has chosen the Thens to lead the attack for a reason. They're hardened warriors, and they're the best chance for the wildlings, especially against those that are holding the wall at Castle Black. Uh, we know who's at the wall right now, and you're talking about being led by blind Maester Aemon, one-armed Donal Noy, half-blind Clytus, deaf Dick Follard, the drunk Septon, and a bunch of green boys, and of course... Leading those men would be the pomegranate himself, Bowen Marsh. So, not your A-team, basically. Yeah, but... Not your Arthur Danes. Yeah, with the exception of Bowen Marsh. We love all of these other people, though. They're not your A-team for fighting, but maybe in our hearts. Yeah, they're my heart team. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like John... John doesn't know how to betray them, right? Because he too loves them. And even if he had the balls to do it, like, he's like, I don't know what to do. He can't send word to Castle Black. He fears that these men are going to be murdered in their beds, unawares. But he also worries, like, if he leaves, then Egret's going to be murdered to pay for his quote-unquote treachery. And we get that line we talked about earlier. Many a night he lay with Egret warm beside him. Wondering if his lord father had felt this confused about his mother, whoever she had been. Egret set the trap and Mance Raider pushed me into it. And a little later we get the line, He did not want their friendship any more than he wanted Egret's love. And yet, he wants them both. He wants a family. That's all he wants. He wants acceptance. And they give it to him, kinda. Kind of-ish. I mean, I understand why they're withholding it. He has been lying to them. Yeah. <laughs> they're uh, not wrong. And then he balks. And yeah, and then he leaves. Like, life's hard. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, John wonders where Ghost is. Did he make it to the castle? He hasn't had any wolf dreams for a while. Yeah, he feels like part of himself is cut off, and he thinks he feels alone, even with Egret beside him. And he doesn't want to die alone. A storm is brewing up, it's pretty awful. They take shelter in this nearby village. Once they get settled, it's abandoned, it's set by a lake, and there's an abandoned watchtower. Interesting. I wonder what kind of tower that is in the middle of the water, Eliana. Huh, have we seen it before? Who knows? Moving on. I I don't know this. I don't know a tower. tower. I've oh. never I've never seen this tower ever in my life. In my life. Yeah, we can't get to it to know what kind of tower it is out there in the middle of the lake and we can't know it even as the wildlings scout the place where they eventually find a fire. John then fears that this is it. It's my moment to betray them. But no, it's just an old man. Yeah. The Magnar orders the Thens to create a perimeter immediately and start patrolling, and the rest of the people get in the broken-down inn for shelter, 
except for several thens. Several thens raid the old man's belongings, his horse, they raid him. The Magnar had said as much at Greyguard. Any kneelers they met were to be put to death at once to make certain they could not raise the alarm. Ride with them, eat with them, fight with them. Did that mean he must stand mute and helpless while they slit an old man's throat? Near the edge of the village, John came face to face with one of the guards Steer had posted. The Fen growled something in the old tongue and pointed his spear back toward the inn. Get back where you belong, John guessed. But where is that? Where is that? So two thoughts. Uh, Magnar says, you know, any kneelers we meet have to be put to death at once. But who is this little old man in this abandoned village kneeling to? Who's collecting his taxes? Who is collecting his taxes? He's not kneeling to anyone. He's literally as free as those people are because the watch is not what it used to be. It's diminished. They can't come ringing doorbells and asking for checks to donate to charity. Uh, This guy is like on the same freedom level as the free folk are, even though he lives below the wall, but they just assume he's probably a lord that lives in his little keep castle and gets whatever he wants. And I don't know. Interesting, because they obviously have some good points. Some good points have been made by these free folk. But not all. Not all. Uh, Also, this is just like in Lilo and Stitch, when Stitch goes into the forest because he's like, I'm ruining Lilo's life and I'm causing destruction. And he takes the book with him that he stole from Lilo and it's the Ugly Duckling book. And he's like, that's me. I'm the Ugly Duckling. Like, who's my family? Like, I have no family. I'm alone. John, where is that? Same thing. No. Or Stuart Little, even. I mean, Jon Snow, Stuart Little, so many parallels. So many. I think that's what inspired George. I'm going to throw it out there. Just like how George time travel warged into the future to be inspired by Shrek for Davos. It's in Onions. It's all canon. John heads towards a broken down cottage and sits at a dry spot beneath it where Egret finds him chillin'. And he tells her, Look, watch this tower in the lake. I know this place. And she's like, I don't know. The Thens heard something. It's probably ghosts. It ran. It's Bran. <laughs> he's like, We could look. And he's about to explain to her if this is the place he thinks it is, they can examine the tower without getting too wet. But suddenly lightning hits it and the top of it lights up like a crown. The paint on the Merlins is golden yellow and it's Queen's crown. Wow, who would have thought? I can't believe this. It's the same tower. It's exactly where Bran is. They're so close. Wow. So I'm so excited because the end of this chapter, John and Bran are going to get back together and the whole band's going to get back together. It's the best. It's so good. This fantasy story is so happy. And so John tells Egret the story of Jaehaerys and Alysanne. Interesting. And Alysanne's visit to the wall. Mm. When he came to Winterfell, he brought his queen, six dragons, and half his court. The king had matters to discuss with his warden of the north, and Alysanne grew bored. So she mounted her dragon Silverwing and flew north to see the wall. This village was one of the places where she stopped. Afterward, the small folk painted the top of their holdfast to look like the golden crown she'd worn when she spent the night among First them. First off, Alysanne is just trendsetter. Mm-hmm. She really is. I saw Queen Alysanne wearing a gold crown, so I put a gold crown on our tower. Pretty much. But 
I think this is interesting because it ties in with something we received in Fire and Blood, a tidbit of info. Earlier on in the chapter, John could not find Ghost. He couldn't have any connection with him. Um, He just couldn't connect with Ghost through the wall. No wolf dreams, no nothing. So in his mind, he was worried about Ghost. He was worried about Ghost not getting south of the wall, something happening to him. But there's a similar tale where there's a wall and magic happening and Queen Alisan is on her dragon and in Fire and Blood we're told that her dragon would not go north of the wall. Uh, that no matter how she tried to get Silverwing to go north, Silverwing would not go north. So it makes me think that the magic of the wall is the same magic that kind of operates with dragons and operates with direwolves and possibly, especially with all of this blood sacrifice that this wall has built up. It's the same magic that the old gods operate off of and other gods like Relore, uh, the Lord of Light, and even the Drowned God, if you really want to will it that well. Mm. So I think that George finally got to grow the Alisand bit with Silverwing. It was probably in his notes and on his brain this whole time, but it's very curious that these bits of the chapter are connected, right? That last chapter set us up with is Ghost okay? Is he going to where John wants him to go? And now John has no contact with him, which makes us go, ah, Ghost is at Castle Black. Mm, yes. Uh, he made it. He made it home. Homeward bound. Oh my bound. god, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> he did it. I, I do think that's like a lot of, that's a great way of looking back. Going back to wait hmm. to go forward. I th- I think you've done a great job of helping us go forward and going back to go forward, Chloe. I'm close enough, close enough. I'm working on it, but you did good. Egret <laughs> says uh, that she's never seen a dragon, and John's like, "Well, duh, they all died, you dummy." But I'm gonna be like, "Well, I think it's actually more of the John has grown up with a deprived childhood." All right. Because Egret's like, yeah, I've never seen the dragon. Because Egret over here has had a magical childhood. Growing up, seeing giants and snuffle up a guy everywhere. And she's like, I don't know, maybe I'll see a dragon one day. Dream big, though, Egret. Dream big. Literally big. Literally giants. I love that John tells her, like, well, this is before they died, like, a bajillion years ago. And they start talking about Alisan. And she's like, if she was so good, she would have torn that wall down. Which, yes, true. And John thinks, no, the wall protects the realm from the others and from you and your kind as well, sweetling. <sighs> They're not so different, John. You yeah, know this. Absolutely. You know You've this. You've ridden with He's them. Just... You've fought with them. You've not balked at them. Balk. Yeah. He's just trying to socially distance himself yeah. from them as he prepares to He's escape. go. So they're interrupted by the Magnar, who's now barking for John. So John falls along, and Egret, to steer his dismay, comes along as well, because she's a free bitch and she can do whatever she wants. Uh, I was listening to that album again a few days ago. Classic. They find the Magnar standing at a tree in the middle of the hearth slash common room, and, oh, it's the old man, and he's kneeling. Stir tells John, all right, John, kill this man. And then John draws a sword, and Corrin's words ring in his ears. Also, his father's? The man is dead. What matters if it is my hand that slays him? One cut would do it, quick and clean. 
Longclaw was forged of Valyrian steel, like ice. John remembered another killing. The deserter on his knees, his head rolling, the brightness of blood on snow. His father's sword, his father's words, his father's face. Yikes. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot there. A lot to unpack. I'm just going to blow past it because we all know. Just damn. Uh, Egret tells him he has to do it to prove he's not a crow. And John is like, dude, he is a sitting old man. You want me to kill a sitting old man? And Egret argues Orel was sitting by a fire and he was killed by you. And you meant to kill Egret. Or, fuck. And you meant to kill me as well, John. So really, honestly, it's not that different. Honestly, she has a pretty good point, which is why I kind of struggled with the scene like initially. Because like, I was remembering this moment before coming to it and rereading it. And I was comparing the situation of killing the old man with like how John must not balk when killing Corin, but he balks at killing this old man. And in the context of like the context of these situations, right, with Corin's orders of what John has to do. And at first I was thinking like, oh, the big difference is that Corin knew what he was asking of John, right? He knew that he had chosen to give up his life for this cause. And I think that choice does make a big difference in a story where many people are willing to sacrifice the life of some other person, but not necessarily their own, tying into some of those larger themes of like slavery and what the others do, and like the lords and stuff, whatever. Um, but also, I mean, Egret's kind of right. What is the difference between this old man and when John killed Oral and like Egret's friends? Like, and I think that the difference in those situations actually comes down to how John himself acts in them. And uh, here are some quotes, one from Clash, where John does kill Oral. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw the sleeper stirring and he knew he must finish his man quick. When the brand swung again, he bowled into it, swinging the bastard sword with both hands. The Valyrian steel sheared through leather, fur, wool, and flesh, but when the wildling fell, he twisted, ripping the sword from John's grasp. So I think this is from John 6, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in Clash of Kings. But compare what happens here, right? So here, John just like bulls into the dude uh, versus we're going to reread a little more of that passage that we just did right now. The man kept staring at him with eyes as big and black as Wells. I will fall into those eyes and drown. The Magnar was looking at him too, and he could almost taste the mistrust. The man is dead. What matter if it is my hand that slays him? One cut would do it, quick and clean. Longclaw was forged of Valyrian steel. Like ice, John remembered another killing. So, as John remembers that other killing, it happens as he's looking at this man in his eyes. And what we're seeing here is that John, when he kills Oral, doesn't give him northern justice. He never looked in Oral's eyes to judge him. He respects that one of the wildlings goes for the horn first, but he didn't do what he was supposed to do based on what Ned taught him. Because here, John looks into this man's eyes and he can't judge him as someone that's worthy to die and thus can't bring himself to kill him. Yeah, so John refuses to do it. And the Magnar commands him to. And John's like, you don't command me. You don't command free folk. You only command thens. And this is where that whole power structure of we're free, but we're also not really free comes in. Steer says he sees no free folk, only a crow and his crow wife. This pisses Egret off very badly. She declares she's no crow wife and she slits the old man's throat. Which, interesting parallel here. 
Her and Tormund earlier protected John by speaking out of turn, trying to get information out of John, and Egret is still protecting him here as well. Yeah, it is interesting. <sighs> he wasn't worth it, Egret. She yells at John, then he knows nothing and flings the bloody blade at the ground by his feet. And then the Magnar tells the Thun something that John doesn't in- understand, but it makes no matter because lightning crashes down on the lake and thunder shakes everything. And death leapt down amongst them, is one of the lines. And more than that, a giant direwolf is that death. A huge gray direwolf descends on them, it kills a then, and another, and another. And at first, John thinks it's ghost. Like we said, this question is getting answered in this chapter, but John doesn't know that yet. And he thinks that the wolf is ghost, but he realizes that the wolf's gray. He knows he has no chance other than right now, so he takes it. His sword is still out, and he cuts down a then in front of him. He slashes at another. He fights his way through. He gets to a horse. He mounts the horse. She lashes out. She bucks at thens all around her, and then they're off. Hours and then they're off and fired. Hours later, John finds himself in the grass, and he's worse for wear. There's an arrow sticking out of his leg, and he can't even think of the madness that just happened. John shook his head. He had no answers. It was too hard to think about the wolf, the old man, Egret, any of it. And the things that happen in this scene is just like, it's so excruciating because John is bleeding profusely. And he tries to take the arrow out, but it's agonizing. What he does to take the arrow out, you know how you might think he's going to pull it out? No, he can't because of the way the arrow is shaped. So he pushes it all the way through till it comes out the other side of his thigh. Uh, and he's like, I don't know how I did this. He eventually does do it. And he's like, I can't believe I didn't pass out just now. I need to just lie down here <laughs> after what I've done, which understandable. John at this moment wonders if Egret had been aiming for him or for the horse, because had she actually hit the mare, John would have been doomed. He would have never made it out. I don't think this is something that George was doing, but it reminds me of a line, a an iconic line from the Shakespearean play Richard III, because I'm nothing if not scripted in the things that I will reference here. And it's a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Richard III in battle loses a horse, and because of that... It's about this irony of like, oh, I needed this like small, simple thing and like everything fell apart because I didn't have it. But here, John's lucky. All right. His horse wasn't hit. He's like, I'm really glad that my leg got in the way. He literally thinks something like that. He's like, this is great. Yeah, he's like, my leg got hit. (laughs) We did it. Good job, team. John makes himself get up, if only so he doesn't bleed out on the ground to death. He goes to a cold stream, he washes his wound, he binds his leg up, and he mounts the mare once more. Thunder rumbled softly in the distance, but above him the clouds were breaking up. John searched the sky until he found the ice dragon, then turned the mare north for the wall in Castle Black. The throb of pain in his thigh muscle made him wince as he put his heels into the old man's horse. I'm going home, he told himself, but if that were true, why did he feel so hollow? He rode till dawn while the stars stared down like eyes. Lots more of that Azora High, Last Hero, uh, Simon Star Eye kind of imagery going on Ooh. here. Very interesting. Yeah, the Last Hero thing is interesting, especially because when you think about it, this is very much like a corollary. Sent his dog away. He said 
goodbye to his friends. Yeah, or like the last time John tried to say goodbye to his friends, right? In his last a Game of Thrones chapter where he's like running away on a horse and he's deserting, but he's doing it again this time, but this time he's deserting for Castle Black, not away mm, from home it. Home is where the mutton is. Yeah, and this time at least he doesn't have his giant wolf to give him away. Yeah, he already sent his dog away. Yeah, so he could just pretend to be like a rando. How interesting that each of these Starks have had to kind of send their wolf away for the most part, right? Like, uh-huh. Rob had to keep his wolf out at the Red Wedding. Uh, Lady obviously got sent away to death. And <laughs> to death. Nymeria gets sent away uh, with the rocks. And now Ghost, and I'm sure Summer will have something. And Shaggy Dog, I hope, never has anything wrong happen to him ever in his life. But I mean, both Shaggy Dog and Rickon were sent away together. That's true. That's true. Together to the room. We did it. <laughs> I just, yeah, this is such a great ending. Stars stared down like eyes. So many conjured ideas. Watching him. Mm-hmm. To go forward, you must go back, Jon Snow. The others. Oh, yeah, Quaith, but also the others. Fascinating, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Road till dawn. <sighs> wow. All We're right. getting so close to this battle at Winterfell, Eliana. Mm-hmm. But, so the battle of Winterfell is obviously going to be a big deal and quite a treat. We do have a few more treats after that. Stay tuned. Friends and family. <laughs> yeah, you guys will know soon. We promise. We promise. My family doesn't listen to me. <sighs> I hope mine doesn't. I love them, but by God. I th- at what cost? I think my mom th- My mom thinks about it, but I'm like, it's not It's not going to make much sense to you. She's been recommending this to like our friends and some others in our family, oh, no. though. <gasps> well. Well. All right. Well, with that, I think we will close this week. Next week, you guys are going to hear us do John 6. Uh, we'll keep it short and sweet. Nice, brisk episode. And the week after that, we will go into the battle at Castle Black. We, of course, have a couple of other things coming up for you. Before July ends, we are going to have a Patreon episode about Northern Independence. You know, about kneeling, not kneeling, all that good stuff. Yes, I'm excited for that. And as well as that, you can look forward to our very first episode of His Dark Materials. We're covering the first book, whether you want to call it The Golden Compass or Northern Lights. If you're British, if you're pretentious, if you're me in America, stuck where you have to say The Golden Compass. It's just illegal to speak otherwise. Uh, It's all in where you stand. It's all in where you stand. Oh, my God. Uh, I that will be it. coming out, too, by the end of July. So look for that. We are very excited. Uh, if you haven't read it before, I'm reading it for the very first time. Eliana has read it. So you will still have half of us to relate to. Come join us. It will be fun. <laughs> yeah, so stay tuned for when all of that comes out. You can keep up by subscribing to us on social media. There's Girls Gone Canon over on Twitter, where Chloe has also posted some of the album art that will be accompanying our series and of course you can always shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com hey subscribe to us if you haven't subscribed to us on your podcast listening device and app Uh, you can find us on podbean on spotify on google play on itunes on stitcher on acast and many others We do have a Patreon where you can catch some of those episodes. For $5 and up, you get those special episodes like Northern Independence. We also have a stretch goal, we mentioned it earlier, where we would like to do for all of you a feast for feast. 
Yes, very excited about a feast for feasts. Basically, it's a live stream where Eliana and I will be cooking from the semi-official companion cookbook, A Feast of Ice and Fire. We'll make a few recipes from there together, live, live streaming it to you guys while talking about A Feast for Crows, our favorite book. So get us to that stretch goal. Every little bit counts. We have tons of different perks, so come check it out, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And as always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. You know me from the internet, Liza Arbor. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. You don't know Oh my me. god, what if they do? From the internet. Maybe maybe you do. Maybe you're not just I lurks in the shadows. They don't know. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'm lying. Maybe I'm a turd cloak. Bastard Oathbreaker. Oh my god. Damn. Damn. Motherless. Damn. Damn. <laughs> Good night.